Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. And today we have a very special guest, Neil Markey. Uh, Neil, Neil is a co-founder and CEO of Beckley Retreats. He is passionate about sharing the benefits of psychedelics in conjunction with contemplative practices that support holistic well-being. As a captain in the U.S. Army Special Operations 2nd Ranger Battalion, Neil was deployed once to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan. After, as an MBA master's student at Columbia University, he suffered from depression and PTSD. This led him to alternative well-being practices and marked the start of a profound healing journey with mindfulness and psychedelics. Prior to Beckley Retreats, Neil worked in private equity and consulting. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, so do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you how you got to where you are to be CEO of Beckley Retreats? Yeah, I'll try and give the short version and then you can kind of drill into any spot. But I, uh, I was an undergrad studying math and then September 11th happened. Long story short, I ended up in the service. I went to Iraq once, Afghanistan twice. Um, I got out in 2012 and was really struggling. Um, I got introduced to meditation and, and then through that community, I had the chance to have some psychedelic experiences. And those experiences felt like they were accelerating what I was trying to do with meditation. And I still very much believe that. Um, I went on um, to finish my master's degrees and then went and did a teacher's certification in meditation and was teaching meditation for a while. Um, and, you know, over, over the course of a few years, I actually ended up in a a pretty good place. I was taking better care of myself. I had, had good practices. I had good community. I was, you know, working on things that mattered. And then the pivot point for me was I um, had to do in deferring this job with McKinsey and company and I asked for another deferral. And they basically said no. And I ended up going there, you know, and part of me loved it. But um, the reality is, is it probably wasn't a good fit for me in terms of the work they were doing. And over the course of a few years there, and then another kind of boutique consult consultancy afterwards, I ended up in almost as bad a place as I was coming out of the service after knowing better and um, like really finding a different way to live. And so a little over three years ago, I left and I really didn't know what I was going to do professionally, but I just got back to teaching meditation. And through that, this whole Beckley project has kind of evolved. So I think that that's a bit of the good signal, you know, that um, feels quite organic. And I, I really do. I believe it's my life's work. I love this stuff. It's, I'm so fascinated by it. And um, it's a real honor to get to work with Amanda Fielding and her family. So tell us a little bit more about Beckley Retreats and, and its position and, and sort of what it what it does, what it stands for. And and then what even what one of the retreats that uh, that you or others lead might be like. Yeah. Um, so we, we run holistic, you know, comprehensive well-being programs. And so a few years ago, you know, when we kind of got started, we, we saw the world was changing and we saw that many more people were interested in this work. You know, we saw that there was some amazing operators and providers out there, but there's also a lot of not so great, operators out there. And so we wanted to really kind of professionalize this work and bring high standards, but without over clinicalizing it, I think you can kind of overdo it too. And so we developed the program over the, you know, 
course of a few years and looked at adult learning and habit change science and you know Western psychotherapy and the best clinical research around psychedelics and also what was happening in different indigenous traditions. And we put together an 11-week program, which is four weeks of digital preparation that you can do from anywhere in the world. And in those you know, four weeks, we, we teach a lot of these basic well-being practices. So we teach meditation, we teach mindful movement, we teach breath work. All of our programs are done in groups, so it's a bit of a cohort approach. We think community is a really important part of this work and you know, most optimal to do it with others. And um, so in that you know, first four weeks, you get access to our catalog of content. And a lot of the work you can kind of do on your own, the prep work you can do, you know, the prep work you can do it wherever you are in the world. Um, but you do you know, get to meet the group and get to meet your other participants in a couple different um, Zoom calls. And then we bring everyone down um, for an immersive experience for five nights. We either do those programs in Jamaica or the Netherlands. Um, we're in those two countries because it's the two places where it's clearly legal. We can do everything above board. We think that's very important because anytime you start doing things in the gray area or on the underground, it, you got to ask more questions. Not that there you can't do it safely. It's just there, you know, um, you gotta, you gotta be even more cautious when, when you're dealing with gray area. And then, um, in the immersive portion, we're doing all of those things that we taught in the prep, but now we're doing them together in deep in nature, um, you know, beautiful locations. It's a bit of a digital detox, you know, but we're doing meditation and mindful movement. We're getting in nature. Um, and then, you know, the highlight I would say is the two psilocybin sessions or, or ceremonies. Those usually start on like day two and day four mid afternoon. They're done in a group setting. Um, everyone gets their own custom amount of, uh, naturally grown mushroom or truffle tea. Um, I can maybe I just kind of could give the rest of the program and then we can kind of drill into wherever, um, you guys have interest, but you know, there's also really amazing food on site. It's all organic, locally grown. Um, and then, you know, we use Western psychotherapy informed approaches for the group work, right? Because a lot of it is doing, doing a lot of this, these sessions with others. And, and then on the back end, we do six weeks of digital integration or follow-up. And um, those are, you know, a series of group calls and then more access to our content and our practical exercises. And we think that this is really important because from a neuroscience perspective, although, you know, we don't understand the mechanics of the brain super well, what it looks like is these high dose experiences um, put the brain and central nervous system and body into a more malleable or neuroplastic state. So that's great. You have this new potentiality, but you got to do something with it. So we try and give people the tools that they can lay in these new patterns, right? And so we think um, this kind of comprehensive, longer form approach is going to have better outcomes for people longer term. Um, so that's kind of the overview of the program. And I drill into any piece of it if you'd like. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm especially interested in the group-based yeah. uh, aspect of it. Like, why do you think that's important? And, you know, what do you think that benefit that brings to the table? Um, well, I think that it's a few things. One, you know, I'm still a big supporter of, of one-on-one -on -one work. You know, I don't think that that like needs to go away. Um, mm. but sometimes I think what we're correcting is an over-indexing on self. And the problem is you go in to see a mental health therapist or professional and 
you're already thinking about yourself too much, right? And then they get you to think about yourself even more <laughs> from different angles. And before you know it, you can be in this like loop where it's like, it's, it, it can get, it can get nuts. Um, and so I think self-reflection and things, it's very important, but there needs to be some balance. And I think that when you do this work with, within a group, you, um, you get out of your own self a bit. You see that it's not just you having these issues. It's actually just part of being human, you know, and you see the humanity in others and it just, you can't help but be softened up by it. You know, you just like, it helps develop this empathy when you express and are witnessed by other human beings and vice versa, you know? So I think that this like heart, this, this, this heart work, you know, it's, it's best done with others, with peers. Um, and, and then from, uh, an economic or a, you know, a, a scalability perspective, you can actually get cost efficiencies, you know what I mean? Where mm -hmm. it's really expensive mm -hmm. to do the maps kind of MDMA protocol. I think it's excellent and it's great, but like, how do we get that to everyone? It, you know, we've got to come up with other models, right? So I think that, you know, the, we're working on models that are, that are more scalable and more community-based, more peer-based that um, I think have a better user outcome, better, you know, we'll have better metrics as we track them. Um, and they're just more efficient. You know, it's just, they're, they're more scalable. So one, one thing you mentioned was that you want to provide a setting without over-clinicalizing it too much. And it's sort of, it's kind of an interesting question right now, what a clinical setting is for taking psychedelics and, you know, mm -hmm. some, you know, maybe it's a little, it's a little weird and out of place to, to maybe over clinicalize it a bit, but, you know, on the other hand, you want sort of the legitimacy of, of, you know, a controlled clinical setting and, and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I'm wondering is uh, what kind of um, maybe, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't, do this in response to a diagnosis as you would in a clinical setting. So if someone right. comes to you, they are more interested in the experience or the, the, the event than necessarily uh, direct treatment for one of their diagnoses. But, uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, we, we know that uh, this has been, there's been so much good news about uh, how effective psychedelics are in treating so many different conditions. And I think, you know, you yourself found it very useful for, for your condition. So I guess I'm, this is a long way of, of asking, you know, what, what sorts of things do people go to the retreat treats uh, looking to, to help or, you know, you know, looking to process through, yeah. is, is it, is it often one, is it often things that are sort of, they're diagnosed with, or is it maybe just no. sort of a, a constellation of things that they might be interested in? in yeah. Treating? So it's a good, it's a good question. You know, our programs are explicitly non-medical, mm -hmm. so we don't diagnose or treat anything. And we actually screen people out mm -hmm. where the clinical model would, you'd have to meet some level of indication to be screened in, to be able to receive the treatment. Our programs are for people that are looking for personal, professional, spiritual development. So it's generally people that are well, that mm -hmm. are looking to become more empathetic or more creative or more um, connected. Um, and most of our guests are coming because they want to make some change in their life. You know, we hear oftentimes people say something like, I've just wanted to make shifts and I just haven't been able to do that. I kind of want to, you know, really make a real effort to make some positive shifts in my life. Sometimes people will have 
just experienced some type of loss. So death of a loved one or a divorce or lost a job. And they're like, I want to honor it, but I want to move on. You know, like I can't have it weighing on me and not to cheapen it, but just like to process it and then, you know, get, get back to, you know, living a full life. Um, a lot of guests come down very openly on a spiritual path, you know, whether they're a yogi or a meditator or a whatever, you know, and this feels like the next logical step for them, for them to develop their spiritual practices. Um, and then we also have guests that are just, you know, adventurers and seekers and just want while they're in this body to kind of explore all there is to explore of being human. And this is a big you know, a big, a big thing. And they want to do it. They want to do it safely. And they want to um, learn about different spiritual traditions and indigenous traditions and cultures and um, yeah, different ways of thinking about this work. So if you were to get somebody that were to come to you and say, you know, I've got a major depressive disorder, and I want, you know, I want this retreat to help out. Is that something where you might say, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the right path for you, maybe a clinical treat a setting might be better? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, um, we, we, t we, you know, we, we screen out quite a few people because we're managing for a group dynamic and, um, yeah, the, the higher the trauma history, you know, and the kind of current presentation of trauma, the, the reality is, is the larger the risk, you know, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you need, not that you can't benefit, I mean, uh, you know, the, the clinical research is pretty overwhelmingly clear. There's something here for sure with treatment resistant depression or PTSD, but you need another level of infrastructure in place. You know, that that's where it makes sense maybe to have a more two-on-one facilitator to guest ratio. You need to have kind of in geography follow-up, you know, like there, there's, you just, you need to just think about it differently and make sure that, that you're, um, yeah, that given the guests what they need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thinking about uh, trauma and, and PTSD, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about your experiences with that and how psychedelics specifically helped you and how you how that kind of reads on what you do in the retreat settings. Yeah, I mean, you know, comparing trauma is always an interesting thing because it's relative, but I always feel like I should say that I got quite lucky in the service relative to most, you know, I came out all my fingers and toes and I had quite a few close calls, but you know, um, I left, um, intact. Um, a lot of my, I think trauma ended up coming from this kind of like low grade intensity, right? Like being constantly in a state of alert for, for years. Um, and then add to that, I had a pretty significant head injury from a jump. Um, and next thing you know, your central nervous system is in this like state of fight or flight, you know, and, um, and it's just, you know, you're training to do work that, um, is really horrible. I mean, it's, it's awful. War is awful. And, um, man, when I was, when I was there, I didn't realize it, but everybody in the entire Ranger Regiment had some level of PTSD, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of gets to this point where we're almost 
you know, you kind of, you're in this fight or flight and then, and then it can almost, it can, sometimes it'll tip over into this state of just like dullness and apathy. You just, you just, you don't have any feeling for anything anymore. Your, your body and central nervous system is basically just shut down. You're just, you're just struggling to kind of get through the, through the days. And, um, yeah, it, it can be really hard to, to, to reset. Um, but what I found with, with psychedelics is for me, um, yeah, they, they have some way of getting into the body, central nervous system, subconscious at like a very deep level and allowing for some type of reset, you know? And, um, I always describe, um, my kind of central nervous system at one point was like a bunch of rubber bands that were stretched and twisted to the point of where some were snapping. And it felt like those first few psychedelic experiences really just allowed that like to release at that like cellular level almost. Um, but it wasn't one and done, you know, it takes time. And there isn't, there's a saying that I really like, which is, you know, the deeper the trauma, more times it needs to be let go, you know, but these can be kind of very important events and walking down that, walking down that path. Um, you know, for me, I couldn't drive down the street without, uh, passing trash and feeling my body tense, thinking that it would explode even years after being back, you know what I mean? And now I'm happy to say 11 years later with lots of work and lots of effort, I don't have that body response. I can, I drive by traffic and, or drive by, um, um, trash and, um, and I don't feel it in my gut, in my, <laughs> you know, that tent, that instant tense in my body anymore. So it, something has been able to come to the surface and be released. So I'm curious where, so, uh, where were you introduced to the idea of psychedelics as something that might help for PTSD? Is it something that other army bodies or, or, uh, yeah, it, well, I kind of going around in the culture. I got introduced to meditation first mm. and that was really powerful for me. And I just had this intuitive sense. I was like, I need this. And this was after cycling through lots of different kind of traditional approaches, SSRIs and anti-anxiety medications and a bunch of different stuff, you know, much of which worked for a while or, you know, and then, you know, then, mm -hmm. then the um, side effects would be worse than the symptoms. I mean, you, I'm sure you guys have heard this story many times. Um, and, and then through that group of meditators that I met, I got introduced to some doctors that were using psilocybin kind of on the underground to treat veterans and, and then got connected into that community. Um, but yeah, the veteran community, um, has been, has been, you know, pretty active in this world because it's working, you know, I mean, it's not for everyone and it's not a panacea. But damn, we should be trying it. You know, I mean, it, without a question, it's it's. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it radically change guys' lives in a positive way. Do you see change. vets? Do you see vets on the retreats that yeah. uh, the Beckley runs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of our programs are for you know are not for veterans explicitly, but yeah, just on this last program, we had two veterans down. One guy was in for thirty years. Wow. Um, and then we do a couple programs a year that are that are specially for veterans with Imperial College London and Heroic Hearts. And so we're we're kind of doing observational research and and we're looking at 
our programs and how they can benefit veterans with TBI, which is obviously close, close to my heart because I think the TBI and the PTSD are actually like, they're, they're very interlinked, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and TBI is a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. 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 So that, that, that's, you know, that's, that's fascinating. And I mean, when you think about who it benefits and, and who it, who it doesn't, um, do you guys have a way to think about that ahead of time? Like who, who might be likely to benefit or, or, or not? Yeah. I mean, we have a very thorough screening process, so we're looking for, we're looking for fit. And I think that, um, you know, for many, many years, the kind of the consensus was if you had, um, kind of extreme psych- psychiatric conditions like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or, um, multi-personality disorder that you needed to really stay clear of psychedelics. There's some, you know, more innovative doctors that are out there that are actually saying, no, you can still use psychedelics, but it just, you know, it's a riskier approach and you just need to have more care. I'm probably in that camp. I think that there's potential here. And especially if someone's already, you know, if you look at them from like a risk reward standpoint, if someone is already just like, you know, really, really, really struggling. Um, you know, what's the, what's the risk? You know, I think that, you know, as indications get more severe, um, you know, we should generally be open to taking a bit more risk in the treatment if, if we've tried other things and there's no, uh, you know, nothing else is, nothing else has worked. Yeah. That's sort of a little bit where some of the research in this phase of the psychedelic, like Renaissance, uh, kind of started right with patients who had life-threatening illnesses and what you know it's an opportunity because maybe yeah to your point of risk it's like you know they're they're already in a a life-threatening situation so right so so there was the thought that maybe it might be worth a try yeah well and i just um i also do want to i think it's important there are risks and we you know i think that people need to be eyes wide open about those risks um, you know, but I also think that we need to have a sober view of the risks and it needs to be relative. If you look at, you know, the incident rates, um, for kind of negative outcomes versus incident rates for negative outcomes compared to alcohol or, you know, living in a city for 20 years or you, you, you name it. There's a lot of things that we do on a very regular basis that have like pretty risky, um, probabilities. Um, and we do them anyways, all the time. And so, and, and many of them don't have this like potentially radical positive benefit either. So, you know, I think it's important to hold those ideas, um, at the same time in our head that there are risks and we need to be careful and we need education. And, you know, at least with psilocybin, it's like, you know, it's pretty low risk if you do the right screening and you do it in a controlled environment. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredibly low risk. And you would also have time for integration afterwards too. If there was something that was, uh, you know, if someone had a really negative experience, they also do have some time to process afterwards because you said you're, you're, you're still meeting with group work for a few weeks after the, after yeah. the, after the trip too. Yeah. Um. So maybe you could say something more about uh, that integration process too. So, um, you know, in, um, when we've talked before on this show about uh, psychedelics and their use in in clinical settings, that that um, the setting is incredibly important. That it's not just 
taking the drug has an effect is that it has to be in a very particular setting. And then also um, some work needs to be done to sort of understand what's going on beforehand and after. And it sounds like in, in these trips, you're not taking it lightly. I mean, they, they do many weeks of prep beforehand and afterwards too. So maybe you could just speak a little bit about, you know, why, why you do that and, and, and how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a bit of risk reduction, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think you can even further mitigate the risk with proper prep and integration, but then it's also just like optimization and getting the most out of the experience. And I, I really think what we're doing is really what we want is some habit change and um, I think that these compounds, they do, they, 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 they create potential that in a way that may have never been there before in a person's entire life. And so there's this window of opportunity. And what we're trying to do is help people to lay in some new patterns. But, you know, by the time you get to be middle aged or even, you know, a young adult, a lot of how we're showing up in the world becomes these kind of subconscious emotional patterns. And then by the time, you know, you're middle age, they're pretty deeply worn, you know, they're in there, they're really deep. And so you can have these experiences, but if you just like go right back to the way you were living before, um, for same environment, you know, no new practices, it's likely you're going to go back to that old way because there's just like so much momentum, right. In, in, in our bodies and then like in our life. And it's just, so you have to use that window as an opportunity to try and lay in some new patterns, it, you know, from a mental perspective, right? Like, and that's why we do the group work and the journaling and the intention setting. And then, um, you know, really I'm hopeful that people develop a, a, a daily, if not, you know, multiple times a day meditation practice and commit to getting in nature more and, you know, try and figure out is the work that they're doing aligned? Do they need to make some changes in the community that they're spending time with? Like all those things, you have this like really kind of beautiful opening to be able to make shifts. But we think that, you know, we all need a little help from our friends um, to be able to kind of put some of those new new habits in place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we had uh, Robin Carhart Harris on uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about his theory of canalization, which uh, it's sort of like the neuroscientific uh, view on, I think, exactly what you're saying. Like, there's these deep ruts in terms of the way that patterns of neural firing happen as you get into uh, years-long habits. And the psychedelics creates uh, this big burst of, uh, of entropy. And there's an opportunity to flatten those ruts for a moment uh, and, and then potentially create new patterns out of that and yeah if you just yeah if, if you just leave it open to um, you know just take the take the medicine and and then go back to what you were doing before yeah like you try try the same thing again and again and expect different results right I'd be curious to hear more about your your thoughts on uh, contemplative practice and, and meditation and how that integrates with psychedelics and you know how, how those traditions are similar and, and different. Um, well, I think if you look through history and you find psychedelic usage, it's usually pretty related to some type of meditation or awareness practices. I think they're pointing at the same thing. I think they're trying to do the same thing and they're complementary. 
Yeah, there are some who have said that psychedelics are like a shortcut to long-term meditative practices. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, there's different different ways of looking at it. You know, there's one that's like where you know meditation, you're climbing a mountain, and you know, maybe even after twenty to thirty years, you don't get to the top of the mountain. But psychedelics are like a gondola, and they can take you bam right up to the right. top for a bit of time, and then you come back down, mm. and you at least know where you're going, or you get it. And the, the thing is, is like meditation is beyond mind. It's not mind. It's doing something different. And so it's really hard to, to describe what the heck it's for and like get people to understand it with words because it's, it's, it's doing something that is beyond words. And then psychedelics are similar, right? So you give people some direct experience with what the heck this thing is, you know? And, um, and yeah, so they're, they're they're related i think meditation in some way gets you closer to this idea of source or spirit or whatever you know people have been calling it god probably for many years and i think um psychedelics do that as well they like thin the veil um and allow for a more direct connection so my hope really is and i can kind of talk about some of the other things that are really interesting with with meditation and, and psychedelics but my real hope is that people develop a meditation practice through these programs and then they rely on that, you know, and you don't need to take a lot of external substances to have that kind of groundedness and peace. Yeah, I don't know how much follow-up you do with people, maybe, you know, months or even a year later. Um, but I, have you noticed any, have you noticed people, you know, what, what, what they're up to later? Do they, followed up with meditation are they interested in in further retreats or well it's like one of these things it's tough you know everybody's so different their right. history's so different so it's different right um but yeah we just had a program this two weeks ago where we had our first guest back for their third time so this is going to be an annual thing for him because he can either spend his time and his money and go kind of like drink margaritas on the beach or he can come and do some good meaningful personal work and reset recommit with other like-minded people so you know there's there's people that um will do it will do it frequently i think sometimes it you know it kind of runs the gamut i mean some people come down have a really transformative experience go back home they notice they're showing up differently for six eight twelve weeks and then we'll hear that they feel like they've slipped a little bit you know I mean, it's just life doesn't stop coming at you. So, you know, sometimes the psychedelic world gets a little bit of hate because the changes aren't permanent. And it's like, well, okay, well, show me anything where the changes are permanent, you know, like what they, what do you want? Like these, the changes are real, but they can slip if you don't, you know, cultivate the benefits, right? Like, so instead of taking a pill once every day, you take a pill once every year or once every couple of years. Um, maybe, but I don't even think you necessarily need to continue relying on a substance if you really kind of get to the practices. I, I think that, um, yeah, I think we really want people to rely on meditation and nature and positive work, you know, and the, the compounds become less relevant, but those, that's not a good business. It's not a good business model. That's, that's the, you know, that's <laughs> right, the problem. Right. right. You need some, right. you need them to return again and again. Yeah. 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 And I have a really good friend who runs a nonprofit that teaches veterans meditation and 
you know, so I've stayed close to them for years and I was catching up with him, you know, but he says he'll do groups of 20 to 25 veterans. He's been doing it for years. He's like, if I can get one veteran to adopt a practice, he's like, that's success for me. And I just set that as the bar. Six months later, I check in. If I get one, I'm happy. I know the rest are going to fade away. And, I'm, and I, I, God bless someone that keeps pushing on something like that because it, it's a noble thing, you know, but I was just catching up with him this past summer and he said, now like there's so many veterans that are out there having these experiences on their own that he actually is kind of recruiting now for veterans that have had recent psychedelic experiences and says, Hey, now come through this meditation program. And he doesn't have like a huge body of data. So this is anecdotal, but I see I, I, to me, it's true. And I'd love to study it. He said, it's almost reversed. He says, you check in with 25 veterans six months later. And he's like, 20 of them are meditating hmm. because it, it does something. And so then, you know, I mean, to me that that's wow. Right. Because we know for sure there's incredible benefit if you get people to meditate regularly, but who can get people to meditate regularly? No one can. So if nothing else, psychedelics give people this, like, this, this understanding of what the heck they're doing it for. And that's really, really important. Yeah. I think I also, I think about the idea of trait openness. So the psychological concept of openness to experience mm -hmm. and, you know, certainly people who are rate highly on openness uh, to experience are much more likely to be meditators mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, benefit from that. And psychedelics actually has this characteristic of, of really opening people up in that way and, and actually changing their, uh, their ratings yeah. on trait openness. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's like a kind of complimentary way to think yeah. about that. And you guys have seen this documentary, Descending the Mountain? No, no I haven't seen that. Oh, you guys should check that out. You want to um, see some cool stuff about meditation and psychedelics. But Cool. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit about um, Beckley, the organization, the broader organization, and Amanda a little bit uh, about how yeah. that well, all came together? Yeah, Amanda. My God. I mean, what a legend. I love that woman. She's just such a, she's iconic and it's so, I'm so humbled to work with her. It's the coolest thing I've ever gotten to do. Um, she just had a birthday this year. Um, I won't say how old she is cause she might get frustrated with me, <laughs> but she's, she's um, as sharp as can be, you know, she's, she's been doing this work for 60 years, over 60 years. And she started the Beckley foundation in 1998. And through the Beckley Foundation, she's been doing kind of international drug policy reform and research. And her brilliance was she knew you needed to do both. You can't um, do good research if the drug laws don't allow it. And you can't change the laws if you don't have good data. So she was kind of pushing everywhere to try and do both. And um, yeah, she deserves a lot of credit. Her, a few others, some of these um, indigenous communities that have kind of kept the dream alive, like they deserve a lot of credit because they kept doing the work um, while the rest of the world thought it was nuts. And now everybody's like, oh, okay, maybe they were, were on to something. Um, and the fast money is coming in and they're trying to um, capitalize off of it. And we really should pause and just thank um, those that, that um, went against the grain and kept it alive. But yeah, and then so the Beckley Foundation was kind of the start of it all. Um, but then Amanda has two sons, one named Rock and one named Cosmo, which checks out for like a woman that's been in the psychedelics world for her whole life. And, um, and yeah, they, 
they did. Um, they had a cannabis company, um, and you know, Cosmo now runs um, Beckley SciTech, which is doing drug development. You know, looking for novel psychedelic compounds, and then there's Beckley Academy, which is doing facilitator training. Um, they just purchased uh, New Life, which is a telehealth kind of psychedelic enabled company. And, um, and then, yeah, I run the retreats business. So it's kind of a family of companies that are all kind of around the foundation and all have the spirit of Amanda <laughs> in them. And you, you sort of alluded to the uh, you know, reform in terms of laws and regulations and such. Where do you see this going as a business in the next few years, particularly in the context of uh, reforms to the, to, the, to the legal code and how these things are treated? Do you see doing retreats in the U.S. at some point? Do you think that's in the, in the future? Yeah, I think it's in the future. I think it's a little bit further down the road. I mean, you know, in Oregon and Colorado, you know, Oregon's already having their some of their psilocybin sessions now. But from a business perspective, it's still very clearly in violation of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. And so we don't know what's going to happen, honestly. There's still very senior people in the DEA um, that think this is going in the wrong direction. And the problem is, is they don't need much to lock all your assets up and your business is just kind of dead in the water. So, you know, we'll probably stay doing what we're doing um, for, you know, a while um, and see how things develop. We don't we don't we're not in a hurry. But, yeah, ultimately, we will have programs in the United States as the laws allow. Um, I think that's the only way to really get this work to be truly accessible is you need to get it near the people. So I envision a world where we have centers, you know, all over near major metropolitan areas, and then you can have a more of what we would call a regenerative economic model. So that center, I I do think they need to be in nature, nature matters. I want to do them outside the cities. Um, but then they're mostly staffed by that local population and they're mostly served that local population and all the resources stay nearby. You know, I think that's what we, we need to move towards. It'll just, it'll just take a bit of time. Yeah. You, you were talking about outdoors and being in nature. Um, why, why do you think that's so important uh, in the context of psychedelics and what's that like at the retreats that, centers that you have? Like what kind of physical environment are, are we looking at? Um, yeah. Well, you know, we are nature. We forget that sometimes. I mean, I just love looking at, um, you look at the cross section of a lung and then you look at a tree. Um, they look exactly the same and they do the reciprocal function. One takes oxygen, carbon turns to carbon dioxide and the vice versa. It's like, so we're part of this thing. But for us city folk, particularly, um, we've really disconnected from that. And that in and of itself is a big problem. Right. And um, if you look at what the Japanese are doing, they're doing nature bathing. They're literally like with a doctor's prescription, just taking people into the woods and sitting them there because something is happening. And we're starting to see um, and starting to be able to measure this kind of like very real exchange that happens when we're in nature. And I believe I think, you know, many others believe that then when you're using these compounds, that opens up even more. You know, so not that you can't get benefit in clinics. Again, I'm super supportive of people doing this in safe ways in cities. 
But I think it's even better if you can get people in nature and get them off the devices and give them some space so that there's actually time for things to shift between the experiences. If you have an experience and then an hour later you're back home with the TV on, it's like the body is just going to want to revert back to what it knows. So creating kind of space around the experiences, I think, is more optimal for things to be able to really shift long term. Um, and then our properties, we're just thoughtful about the properties that we use. We get stuff that's, that's away from everything. So, um, you know, if, when you're on a pro, one of our programs, all you see is other guests and the staff. You know, it's not like it's right next to some other facility or something. We, we just really like that because we think that we think it's meaningful to, to have nature as a partner. I'll ask a similar question, too, because I noticed that you had someone on your staff who is a, a musician and facilitator. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what's the role of music? Uh, we've heard this before, that music can be important for um, for psychedelic experiences. And, um, you know, even even clinically, uh, it gets used a lot. I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are about uh, how music plays a role. Yeah. Um... Well, if you look again how this work is done traditionally in different spiritual indigenous traditions, it's it, music is a big, big part of it. So people that have been doing things for thousands of years and iterating, it's like we should probably pay attention to that. They might have learned something along the way that's meaningful. Um, and so we really love live music. I think, the, you know, uh, there's some really great recorded playlists out there. Um but if you've never had one of these experiences with, you know, trained facilitators that play live music and sing, it'll blow your mind. It's so that's so, something it's that, so is that something beautiful. that's a normal part of, of retreats is live music. Yeah. And oh. for ours are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of places will play a playlist on the boombox. I again, I think that can be OK. Um, it's not like there's a it's a risk thing. But yeah, the the the, the live music and allowing the artistry of it to like our musicians, they, they, you know, they have a playlist in their mind, um, but they're improving, you know, they're, 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 they're going with, they're going with the group, you know, the group is having an experience and they're playing in relation to that group. And sometimes they want to bring the group up and sometimes they want to take the group to over this way. And they do that with the music, you know, and it's really, um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to watch. It's really fun to watch. I think about, uh, you know, some of the experiences I've had following, uh, you know, some of the jam bands out there, like the Grateful Dead and the, those types of live performances and how there's that interaction between the people experiencing the music and the musicians. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of really, it, it, yeah, there's a way in which to me, I, I see there's a real connection with that and contemplative practice. And of course, also psychedelics. Mm hmm. Yeah. Just tuning into something that the fundamental connectedness of all things, right? The fundamental right. that we're yeah. we're not fundamentally separate. That you can yeah. feel the connection. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm sure there's some evolutionary um, explanation. In fact, I'm sure of it. An exp explanation of music as sort of a cohesive force, right? Something that so as a social bond. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to move in a slightly different direction too. So. So two places that you hold the retreats now, and, I, and correct me if there are other ones, too, are uh, the Netherlands and Jamaica. So, and you have, have you led trips in both of these places? Um, what do you mean? Like me personally or? Uh, yeah. 
Oh, or, or you've well, been involved in, you've been involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I go on a lot of the programs. I'm not a facilitator, um, you know, so I, right. I, when I'm on site, I go to meals. I, I still, I mean, I, I'll join meditations, but then generally I go to my little office and I'm figuring out boring things like insurance and fundraising <laughs> right. and right. legal stuff while the facilitators <laughs> kind of like do the magic and run the program. You're like the producer, right? Okay. Um, I'm something like that. Yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, are there any issues with, uh, that you've run into in either of these countries where, you know, I don't know, citizens of the United States might have, might have problems or are there any concerns that people might have? Well, the one concern, I mean, so everything we're doing is legal from, a local perspective in Jamaica and the Netherlands and from a U.S. federal perspective, because the way the laws work federally is so long as what you're doing in the countries where you're operating, it's legal. Then from a U.S. federal perspective, it's legal. So we're completely above board. Um, to the, the things that people need to be concerned about, you know, um, I mean, one, you know, do your own research, see if our approach is the right fit, you know, like, talk to a facilitator, join one of our Q and A's, ask a bunch of questions, take it seriously. If you're going to take the time and the money to do it, then, then, then do it, then do it right. Um, but you're not breaking any laws in any ways. Um, the, 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 the place where it can be a bit complicated is people that have, um, employment, um, agreements where there might be some stipulation around drug use. You got to check that. And then security Mm -hmm. clearances can get a bit funky too. So you gotta, you gotta check that. Um, but, but generally, you know, you're not doing, you're not doing anything legally wrong. Um, and I hope that that, you know, continues shifting. I mean, to me, it's a human right to be able to use these compounds. You know, it's kind of crazy that we have to ask a big federal government, whether we can use these things that grow from the earth and people have been using for thousands of years to connect. It's just a bit nuts to me, but you know, we are where we are. Yeah, absolutely. With that in mind. How do you think about access? Because obviously, you know, if there's, if you have to fly somewhere and all that, it's going to be expensive and time consuming and, and like that. So, you know, if we think that this is something that's important for a lot of people to experience, how do you think about getting it out to more people? Yeah, you know, this will take time, right? Because we're kind of in this new stage. And so that requires um, things are more expensive now than they hopefully will be in the future because we're going to learn things and we'll get some efficiencies. Um, but we're a public benefit corporation. So we have a clear dual mandate to become sustainable and to increase accessibility. And we've got the right people around the table that believe in that. You know, like our small group of investors are not just trying to like maximize return. They want to do some good in the world. You know, they want to show that um, a company can be heart, be heart centered. And so, um, you know, we, we have scholarships on almost all of our programs and we also have, a, a, a fiscal profit or a fiscal sponsor nonprofit. So we are in the process of taking, um, donations into a scholarship fund that'll go directly to funding people on the programs, but we're already, we've already been funding people even out of our own money. You know, we've done two programs that were fully funded for veterans. Um, we've done over a dozen um, um, scholarship spots 
Um, you know, we did a, a program for, for all women, mostly spouses of veterans. We have an all women's, uh, all black women's program next year that's fully funded. You know, so we're, I mean, that's what my team's most excited about me is, you know, getting this work to more people and the individual transformation, but also being an example of what a company can be like that is trying to do some good in the world and isn't just trying to make as much money as fast as possible. You know, it's so boring to do that. It's like, and we've just got to get out of that mindset. It's ridiculous. It's just like, you know, um, it's a bit of a, it's such a myth, you know? So yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to do it right. Are we getting, are we going to make some mistakes? Yes. Um, is it hard to figure out how to find that middle path and be sustainable and do good work and like, kind of manage all of these different um, things that we want to incorporate. Yeah. But I think we're doing a pretty good job. How do you guys think about outcomes? Like are you mentioned the observational study that you're a part of with the Imperial college. Do you regularly collect uh, other outcomes measures just to see like how people are doing? Yeah, we, we do. Um, I would say it's kind of gen one right now. It's, 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 you know, a pre-survey and a post-survey, and then we're starting to do some longer term follow-ups. The problem is getting people to fill out the Mm -hmm. surveys. If you guys have ever done any type of like Mm -hmm. studies, then you know that that's the challenge. So we're trying to figure out how to, to do that. I think we're going to probably have to start paying people, um, to complete these follow-ups just so we can show the long-term efficacy, which I'm pretty confident um, will will be pretty clear to show. And this next year, we're in conversations with a few very interesting data partners, so some research institutions that um, are interested in partnering with us to say, okay, are we gathering the right data, Um, right? Are we using the right surveys that people will care about? Um, And then helping us think through how we kind of you know, look at the data and maybe publish the data together. So I'm hopeful in the next six to nine months, we'll have something like official in place so that we can kind of be a standard bearer in the non-clinical side of this work and, and gather good data. Um, and so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a work in progress, but the plan is to really, you know, get out in front of that and like really professionalize that. Um, and it looks like there's a lot of brewing interest in, the non-clinical side of this work now, you know, how does it affect communities? How does it help people with spiritual development? You know, things that you might not, um, do in the clinical model. Yeah. Yeah. In my, in my experience with that, it's like, I can imagine it's a challenge when you, when people are paying for it and then you're asking them to also participate in the study and, you know, fill out forms because it's a bit of work for people. So they're like, I just paid for this. Yeah, but I think a lot of our guests, um, after they do the program, they're like, oh, man, the world needs this, you know, and, um, and then they get to know our company. And then they're like, okay, these folks are trying to do it right. And so I think we've just got to make it easier on people. And, um, but I think generally people are pretty, pretty up for being, for being in the, in the research. And then you know that we're doing surveys now, but you can do a lot of stuff with with people's phones if people are up for you know using. Um, you know, everybody's got Fitbits and and things now, and you know I think that there's quite a few different biomarkers that we could measure over time that I think we'd have meaningful impacts on. HRV, I think, being one of them, sleep quality being another. You know that um, people wouldn't even have to fill out surveys; it would just be you know track the 
tracking would, the data. Would people out of come in? Would people come in with specific goals like that? I wonder. Do you have people talking about goals that they're interested in meeting when you start out? Like, you know, I want to, I want to sleep better. I want to, you know, things that would be measurable like that. Um, yes, you know, um, but more it's kind of you know, it's probably not as common that people are saying, I want to, I want to sleep better. Right. Right. Um, that sounds a little specific. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People are like, I want to feel better. Yeah. I want more energy. I want to be happier. Yeah. Those types of things, which they might not know is a big function of like sweet sleep quality and kind of how their body's resting and repairing and things like this, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So you can get almost indirect markers of how people are doing. If you're, if you're checking on things like that, I see. Right. Yeah. 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 If you can improve people's sleep and you can improve HRV, man, you're, you're making a huge difference in that person's life. Right. Heart heart rate variability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a pretty good indicator of the health of the central nervous system and like a kind of a check on resiliency. So you want a higher number. Um, and the, the lower, you know, generally the HRV drops with age. Um, because, you know, we get, we get older, we kind of, it's like a rubber band gets kind of worn out over time, but it looks like these practices, meditation, um, likely these compounds and a lot of this other work, they, they help with this vagal tone, HRV, you know, your ability to take stress, release stress, right. Go back into that parasympathetic state, recover, you know, all that, um, is really important for kind of overall health and well-being. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see a lot of that as it's as it's being collected too. Because I mean, as we talked about earlier, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of interest is around in around curing negative symptoms, you know, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. But I think a lot of what you've been involved in, you say, is is more positive psychology, looking at um, in, increasing function for normally functioning people. So I think yeah, well, and I think too that I mean, geez, the Western medical system, like my God, man, it's so fundamentally broken. It's horrible. I mean, it's criminal in some in some ways. It's abs- it's disgusting, you know. And there's parts of it that are good. I mean, in some ways, we have you know maybe some of the most innovative healthcare, but like on average across the board for average person, I mean, it's terrible. It's not preventative at all. All it does is treat things once it gets to a crisis point where you look at many other countries, um, it's just a different model and um, it's more preventative, right? And I think we in the West have to move to a more preventative model where we teach people earlier how to take better care of themselves and we get them the right food and we get them the right practices and we get them the right community. So we stop having to do these really expensive interventions that are often too late and are traumatic on their own. But the problem is, is the way the system's set up right now is that there's a lot of people making a lot of freaking money off this dumb way of doing it, you know? And so it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. But um, I think I'm, I'm an optimist. There's positive shifts that are happening. People are kind of starting to question um, the ways of the past. And so I think, uh, I think we'll see some positive shifts in the next 10 years. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe that's a good place to kind of wrap it up. Uh, Neil Markey, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one last question. What are you ex- really excited about uh, going in the next upcoming months, year, you know, year plus, you know, that you guys are working on or, or that you're working on personally that you're just really excited about? Um, I'm really excited that it just feels 
like the world is opened up to this work. And I think that there's tremendous benefit that can come through that. And I think that, you know, all this change, all this challenge that we see in the world and all the change that we're hoping for, it starts with individuals, you know, and people taking better care of themselves and, you know, healing and, um, and then, you know, going back to their families, better husbands and sons and daughters and, and better members of the community. And it all starts trickling out, you know, and I think that we could be at this kind of watershed moment where, where we see some really positive shifts. I hope so. That's great. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it.